genre. Previously on Legacy Door. I got a call from your Uncle Arthur just as I was about to mail his card, and he'd like to see you. Uncle Arthur wouldn't be Arthur Dorn, would he? Never met him, but he buys a lot of work. A few friends of mine made rent because he picked up something they'd been trying to sell forever. Your Uncle Frank? You said he was the crazy one. He was a weird character. Tall, skinny, gray, dressed like an old movie. Just scary looking. I guess he thought he was a mystic or philosopher or something. Mom and Dad never wanted to talk about him. He did a job on Ven and me, though, I can tell you. Mrs. Alipur, my attorney, will have papers for you to read and, if you agree, sign. With her will be a representative from the organization that will be treating me, who you will already... There was a quick double knock. The intervening decade had made its changes, but the gleam in the man's eyes and the rushing in his own ears prevented Dan from denying to himself for even one moment that he was once again in the presence of his uncle Frank. Legacy Door, Episode 1.7, Understandings. Daniel Lutcher, 1121 AM. And so, said Shada Alipur, turning to the last page of the contract. You see it. You will receive a weekly stipend in exchange for making yourself available to come here, or wherever Mr. Dorn is, on one hour's notice. You will be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for as long as the treatment lasts. All travel expenses will be reimbursed, and you will receive an additional portal-to-portal hourly fee each time you are summoned. You will write up reports of what you observe to Mr. Dorn's satisfaction, and they will be kept secure and shown only to him. For each of these, you will receive the additional piece rate we outlined. During the same period, you will be subject to all of the non-disclosure provisions that we just discussed. Are you prepared to agree to this? Dan nodded. In his situation, there was only one answer to such an offer. Going over the paperwork had made him very glad of his five months of law school, without, however, wishing he'd had more. Writing things like this for a living did not appeal to him. He looked from the contract to Mrs. Alipur, who looked serious but amiable, and then to his Uncle Frank. Frank sat laxly, having not said a word to Dan or even acknowledged him beyond a tip of his hat on first entering the room. That hat, held in Frank's lap, seemed to be the sole focus of his attention. No more questions? None, thank you. Dan had asked them as they went along rather than saving them up. He picked up a pen and signed and dated the contract without anyone having told him to. Well, said Arthur, who had been silently resting for some minutes. With that taken care of, perhaps we can let Mrs. Alipur join the party, and Frank here can have the talk he's here to have. Alipur nodded quickly and rose to her feet. I will do so, thank you, but please let me reiterate just one additional time, in front of the witnesses here, my deep qualms about this entire undertaking. Although I see the benefits of making arrangements concerning your nephew here, in light of the procedure you are preparing to undergo, the procedure itself seems entirely ill-advised, and the incentives which your trust documents create are perverse. This was the fourth time Dan had heard an allusion to the trust. He had not been able to develop a picture of what the trust involved, and no one had asked if he had. Arthur sighed, with a distant current of anger at the edge of it. 
Your objections are understood and recognized, but I am determined to continue. Shada, Will, please leave us alone. Well then, said Alipur, good day to you, gentlemen, and good luck to you, Arthur. Arthur gave a dismissive half-nod in response. Alipur packed her papers into her case, but left one folder in the middle of the table. Riley held the door for her as she exited, then followed, closing it after himself. And now, it is finally time to discuss the trust. Danny signs first, said Frank, his voice softer and more relaxed than Dan remembered from the funeral eleven years earlier, but otherwise unchanged. Danny signs, and then we talk. He opened the folder, pulled a sheet of paper out, placed it on the table, and then returned his attention to his hat. Dan inspected the paper. It indicated that he... Daniel Lutcher understood everything about the trust being funded on that date by Arthur Dorn and agreed not to dispute any of its terms or to divulge them to anyone but those present, confidential legal counsel or law enforcement authorities on penalty of exclusion from the trust's benefits. What is this trust? Arthur looked at Frank. Frank spoke without looking up. I've said before that this entire disclosure is unnecessary. But if you are dead set on it, Arthur, then I reiterate, Danny should see and hear nothing until he has committed. But he has already signed the non-disclosure. That's for his employment. That's your business. This is our business together. Arthur waved a hand with laborious casualness. Here now. I cannot in good conscience tell the boy to sign until he finds himself a lawyer. Silence fell. Dan had thought the same thing, but he kept himself still, wanting to see the scene play out. Since Frank also remained still, Arthur continued, And even then he'll be doing it in the dark, unless we let him into a few secrets. I appeal to your great belief in personal freedom. Frank scowled at that. Besides, he's family. He belongs in. Frank looked Arthur in the face at last, and spoke with a gap-toothed grin. What family is he of yours at this point? He is the son of the brother of the mother of my eldest daughter. There you are. Blood. Dan stared, wondering which of the three of them had gone crazy. Or perhaps how many. Arthur turned his head to face Dan, and pulled his wasted features into the semblance of a kindly smile. Danny. Dan. You understand from Mrs. Alipur that there are secrets involved here. Valuable information. Yes, sir. I would like to tell you some things about this situation now. If I do, and you do not sign the letter... Will you nevertheless give your word of honor not to reveal what I tell you until the course of treatments is finished, even with the motive of helping me? Frank scowled again and looked back at his hat. Dan looked carefully at Arthur. He detected an undeniable intelligence behind his eyes, although he couldn't say for sure whether it was a sane one. Yes. I promise. Insufficient. Oh, come now, Frank, said Arthur. Surely the promise counts for something. Your family has always been noted for its honesty, has it not? Frank looked up, 
his eyes burning with something like hatred, which then turned to a kind of glee as he focused fully on Dan for the first time that day. He grinned. All right, the boy has sworn. Far be it for me to doubt the gravity of that. Wonderful, said Arthur wearily. Give the broad outlines, will you please? I have to admit that this has been an exhausting day with more to come. Frank frowned at Arthur, then smiled predatorily at Dan. As you can see, Danny, your Uncle Arthur is quite ill. An honest doctor would predict he will spend more of the remainder of this decade dead than alive. Dan inhaled sharply, although the information was not a surprise. Frank looked to Arthur for contradiction or support, but got neither. He continued, A group, Logical Medicine, of which I am an interested participant, has an experimental therapy that we are confident will rid Arthur of all his maladies, and in time restore him to full health. I believe it is his only option, and a good one. It was now Dan who searched Arthur's face for a reaction. He saw none. Frank went on. The procedure will require the temporary termination of all conventional medical treatment. A leap of faith, as it were, placing Arthur's health entirely into our hands. Furthermore, Arthur has agreed that, if cured, he will make a very substantial investment in L.M. and use his resources to promote our interests, in exchange for which he will, of course, participate in the profits following success. And... What if it doesn't work? asked Dan. The failure of such an exclusive treatment must bring death very close, very quickly. Now Frank's face grew rapturous. But on the financial side, the sums placed in escrow for the potential investment will go into a family trust, one with some very specific twists and turns, but with its primary beneficiary being you, and the secondary one being Arthur's oldest daughter, Vanessa. And now the rapture became cruel. I believe the two of you are acquainted. Dan didn't feel the full sting of Frank's remark because his law student brain was busy making sense of the trust. But why would... I mean, th thank you for thinking of me, but you're saying that in some way, instead of this group getting the money for the treatment, I would get some of it? Frank nodded with contained ebullience. Arthur with grimness. I hate to ask this, but why? The customs of Dan's time generally put the affectionate claims of children well ahead of collateral descendants such as nephews, and for a prodigal like Dan to come directly ahead of Vanessa, the treasured sole offspring of a beloved late wife, made his priorities seem even more strange. Frank looked to Arthur, who now spoke, his voice and gaze both distant. It is important to me that you, the scion of my Teresa's family, be provided for if I am no longer here to do it. It is a confluence of circumstances which might seem unrelated to you, but not to me. If one thing happens, the other is necessary, and the money, which must be my hands in any case under my agreement with logical medicine, will be there. The patriarchal language lent Arthur's statement a certain plausibility, but for the first time since entering the room, Dan felt lied to. There was a new excitement and nervousness underlying Arthur's weary tone which not even the life-and-death stakes could explain. Dan felt he had to find the manipulation in all this, to think harder, and he tried to. But 
Why is Vanessa involved then? Arthur's eyes hardened, and he showed no inclination to speak further. Seeing this, Frank chimed in. An alternative beneficiary is necessary in these cases. After all, the money must go somewhere if you violate the terms of the trust. For instance, by revealing confidential information. Also, when you fully examine the document, you will see that there's a delightful circumstance under which you can both profit. Nothing that would be expected from the two of you, of course. Frank gave an ostentatious wink. Dan did his best to ignore it, and spoke directly to Arthur. But then... It seems like you want me around while the treatment is happening, so there'll be an impartial witness if something goes wrong. But the trust rewards me if you die. Is that what Mrs. Alipore meant by perverse incentives? Frank's smile turned more cerebral in Dan's peripheral vision, and he answered while Arthur remained silent. It is indeed. Well done. But Arthur's dear counselor does not fully understand the unusual bonds of our extended family. Obviously, you know that if your uncle lives, he will continue to help you and Gina whenever you truly need it. With him dead, your future will depend on navigating the complexities of this document. Would you like to see them? Dan held himself still. As still as he had been in that funeral parlor basement but he felt much more in control of himself this time. He slowly let his gaze slide over to Frank, non-committally. Frank waited a long moment for a more definite reply. His smile shriveled, becoming grudging and spiteful. Then signed the redemptive paper already. Neither Frank's command nor the expletive altered Dan's attitude. He'd been prepared for bullying, and the occasional German swear word had been a feature of his father's speech, a means of softening words that Gina wouldn't want spoken in front of Dan, Thomas Lutcher had displayed very few holdovers from his ancestral homeland, so hearing one of them gave his son Dan a sense of family continuity, not fear. Nevertheless, he had decided his course some time before. He just wanted to get as much information out of his uncles as he could before openly committing himself. He took a long breath, picked up the pen again, and signed. Frank smiled a snarl and took the paper. Very good, very good. Well, I must be off. Dan was surprised. You are not going through the trust papers with us? Frank scoffed. I believe the education Arthur paid for included the ability to read. There are important figures waiting for me, and I have spent enough time on this nonsense. I will see you at the commencement of treatment tomorrow, Arthur. And he will want you here at the house, Danny. Nine o'clock, sharp. Tomorrow? Oh, yes, if you're not too busy. Your uncle's condition is far too serious to wait. Agreed, Arthur? Arthur nodded. Well, then I take my leave. My regards to your wife, Arthur, and to Gina, Danny. Without awaiting reactions, Frank rose, tipped his hat, and departed, leaving the door open. Dan walked after him as far as the door and saw Will Riley in the hallway waiting to come back in. Dan held up a finger for him to wait a minute and reclosed the door. Uncle Arthur, are you absolutely certain this is a good idea? Nothing is absolutely certain, Danny. Neither earth nor heaven. I just... Started Dan, trying to dredge up the words that would make Arthur see reason. I know you'll disapprove, but I don't trust him. Arthur's eyes became a little more lively. No, but he's your family. Closer family than I am, technically. Well, 
I've never felt very close. Really? Not even on some level beyond the visible? Beyond the conscious? Dan had thought he was alert already, but this comment had him transfixed. What do you mean? With effort, Arthur raised a hand to wave away the subject. Withdrawn. Withdrawn. This is not the time. You must trust me to manage my own best interest. But be sure to do the same for yourself. You remember Mrs. Alipore pointing out that you could only disclose information to legal counsel or to aid law enforcement authorities? Yes. When push comes to shove, and one way or another it will, keep that in mind. Joyce Vera, 11.57 a.m. And there's a rare appearance by Vanessa. Looking good, Vanessa. The voice was from a lanky, well-dressed young man of perhaps 21. His speech, dress, and attitude called to mind the collegiate groups which threw the nation's future leaders and infractors together in houses sporting Greek letters. The subject of his comment was well out of earshot. Dude. Give it a rest, okay? You're talking about my sister. The second young man was of similar ilk, but with a muscular huskiness. Joyce, dawdling some yards behind the pair, savored a bite of chocolate-covered strawberry and tried to hide her very acute attention. She found the men's profane conversation interesting on an anthropological level. Stepsister, brah. That don't count for nothing. Dude, if I had a step like that, I'd walk around with a permanent hard-on. I'd be knocking things over. Gross, man. Hell, Julia's looking okay, too. And she's just your half-sister. You could at least manage a semi. The other young man, who had to be Graham Dorn, laughed again, running his hand over his face and looking around for assurance that they were not overheard. Joyce, though still in his blind spot, concentrated on her pose of nonchalance. The first speaker spoke again. Of course, the real story would be Julia and Kevin. Twins, right? Who knows what they get up to? They've been together since the beginning. You're going to hell, man. Hell, you're going with me. Just for listening. Said the other, and Joyce had to admit she felt a little implicated as well. Just ministering to the sinners. Said Graham, extending his arms in a V. The saved don't need saving. Fine, fine. Said the other, waving his hand dismissively. But you don't mind if I take my shot, do you? Graham pulled back his arms and stroked his chin stubble with exaggerated thoughtfulness. You're lucky I know they'd both shoot you down in a second. Otherwise, I might consider breaking your wrist. Ooh, is that the jealous brother talking? It's the brother who knows you too damn well. Shape up and we'll talk. That's good of you, bruh. But I've got a few wild years left to me. When I start to slow down, your girls will get some serious consideration. Great, we're all flattered, said Graham. Now let's talk about something else. He sipped his drink, and the two of them gave the lawn party a more thorough look around. Joyce was already in motion, her back to them. No shortage of talent outside the family, said Graham somewhere behind her. Ahead of her, Joyce heard an Eastern European-accented voice saying, There is one sort of eye, that of, say, Rodin, which can make the hideous beautiful. This sort makes your work valuable when you are dead or too old, really, to enjoy fame. And there is another eye, or, for instance, Warhol, to transgress my medium, whose talent is to make the beautiful 
interesting. This is no more difficult and in the fullness of time no more valuable, but it is superior because it makes the artist rich immediately. A circle of very spry, prosperous-looking senior citizens chuckled, and in their midst stood a short man in his late fifties with a jutting, pointed gray beard and large forehead. He took a gulp of brown liquor whilst they sipped punch. Joyce joined the circle, nodding and smiling to the speaker's audience so as to silently make their acquaintance. As the short man continued his talk about trends in art, and specifically of sculpture, she served him a few softball questions which in turn produced responses reflecting well on both him and her. There were wide smiles all around by the time he reached the bottom of his glass. Uh, I have bored you all too long. Yes, yes, no, it is true. Well, if you insist on being bored further, I must find a very specific fuel to keep my engine going, or else I shall slip a gear and become interesting. <laughs> Until then, Dovidzenie. And with that, he smiled, made a slight bow, and walked off briskly. Joyce nodded in her own turn to the audience and then scampered after him in her flats. Ah, I see you have overtaken me, despite the favorable polarity which attracts me to alcohol and repels me from circles of fools. Joyce matched his speed. I was hoping to have a word or two before your next performance. Mm. He said with an exaggerated frown. Are you here to remonstrate with me from the ivory pedestal of the incorruptible? Not at all. I was hoping for some tips of how to cut myself into the pot without spoiling your game. The man slowed his pace. Ah, I see. So you are not some dilettante heiress who has merely read a book or two. You work as the world works. Let me look at you. He took her by the arm and stopped turned her, and then faced her with both her elbows in his hands. She let her body hang slightly limp, as if she were being posed for a piece, but kept a wry look on her face to make clear that no liberty would go unrecorded. We have met, he said, his accent receding somewhat and his cadence becoming more regular. I taught you at a class, but not for very long. That's true. You did a seminar at my university in East Lansing. Two weeks long, three years ago. He nodded, snapped his fingers, and pointed. And you are a friend of that painter, Jerry Rockloff, one of the beautiful women one always finds around him. And unless I am much mistaken, we later had a conversation much like this one. Yes, at a party at the Imagination Loft, one year ago. That would make you Joyce... Uh, something Spanish. And you are a sculptor. And I promised to look at your work sometime, but never did. Content with his achievement of memory, he resumed his walk. She fell back into step with him. All true. Honestly, that's very impressive, Dudek. He waved a hand dismissively. Ah, I never forget a head of blonde hair. And putting names and interests to faces is a survival skill for the artist who wishes to eat well. There's your advice. I'll remember that. He shrugged dramatically. You will learn it or not. You already seem more willing to spread honey on the bread than I recall. Such growing maturity coupled with a 
patent willingness to persist and adapt bespeaks a serious will, so I am in hope a talent goes along with it. Today I shall introduce you to some people, and tomorrow, if you are free, I will look at your work. What brings you to this party? No, let me correct myself mid-course. You are here to find buyers. What pretext invites you? Joyce smiled to be included in his brusque collegiality. I'm the plus one of Mr. Dorn's nephew, Dan. Dudek looked at her with unfeigned surprise. That would be Danny Lutcher? It would. Well, he must have grown quite a bit to stand next to such an escort. You knew him? I would see him underfoot from time to time, yes. I choose not to think of how long ago that was. I imagine you were in pigtails, which is distressing to think about. I knew his father better, Tomas. At the pantry? Indeed. You have done your research. Niges tonique, she said, meaning it's nothing. And Polish, too. <laughs> or is it all an act? Just one quarter. My grandmother. But I'm Babunia's favorite. Dudek raised his thick eyebrows. Of that I have no doubt. Will Riley, 12.07 p.m. Will waited outside the sunroom's exterior door, carrying in his pocket an antique key to the lock that hadn't been changed in the better part of a century. The key was in case he needed to quickly enter the room to help his employer. He didn't expect the need to arise, but he was ready all the same, as he was for a thousand other contingencies Arthur Dorn's ambitious plans had raised. Will stood with his back to the house, neither patient nor fidgety, simply remaining alert and balanced while continuously reassessing the situation. If all went well, he would really be earning his paycheck over the next few days, with both his body and his brain. And if it went badly, well, those paychecks would be coming to an abrupt end. He knew which option he preferred. He more felt than heard footfalls near the door, turned, and was unsurprised to see Dan Lutcher open it from the inside, Lutcher's manner, which had been extremely diffuse when he'd arrived at the party, had grown considerably more concentrated since. Will approved, even if that might make his own job more complicated. Dan wasn't a trusted partner in the coming business, but Riley didn't consider Arthur Dorn's partners to be trustworthy, so a naive but honest observer with Arthur's welfare at heart seemed good to have around. Before Lutcher could speak, Arthur Dorn's voice came from inside, Horse, as it always was these days when he attempted volume. Will was pleased to detect in the cracked voice an echo of the boom it once carried. Will, I'm coming out now. Please alert Sandra so she can be ready. There should be plenty of time at the rate I move. Will nodded and said, On my way. And then he was jogging into the party proper. He could have picked up the walkie-talkie in his inside pocket and delegated this to the event planner but going himself would be nearly as fast and would provide an opportunity to be useful in Mrs. Dorn's eyes. He suspected such nuances could prove crucial quite soon. Out on the grass, he dropped to a purposeful walk that was barely slower than the previous jog. A quick visual scan showed him Sandra Dorn, a woman nearing 60, who without making any vulgar pretense of being young, nonetheless skillfully arranged herself to avoid looking actually old. Her light brown, carefully styled hair was only slightly lined with gray, her mouth set with lines that spoke more of authority than years. 
she was surrounded at that moment by cronies of approximately the same type, if less dominant, and a smaller number of their husbands. Will slowed to a civilized stride as he approached them, so as not to alarm anyone, and attempted to look as unthreatening as possible as he bent to the ear of Mrs. Dorn, who held up her hand at his approach to excuse herself from the conversation. Mr. Dorn is coming out. Right now? Yes. Sandra turned to her guests as if Will no longer existed. Well, it seems that Arthur, as usual, has kept us waiting only to give me no time to properly prepare for his arrival. Please excuse me. As her audience chuckled, Sandra turned and strode toward the catering station. Will fell into step slightly behind and to her right. Is there anything I can do to help you, Mrs. Dorn? Sandra, please, she said, without stopping or facing him. And your best place is with Arthur, in case he needs something. Of course, said Will, stopping and nodding once at her departing back. Then he did an about-face and trotted back to where Arthur, with Lutcher's help, was carefully negotiating his motorized chair down the smoothly ramped area between the sunroom door and the path through the front garden. Since everything there seemed under control, Will positioned himself to the side and fell in as they overtook him. Shame that Sandra had them pour concrete here just for me. In a very short time, I shall have no need of it, one way or the other. Will might once have winced at how Arthur would give joking hints of their plans, but he'd calloused up, deciding that this would either work or it wouldn't. Lutcher looked sly for a moment, then said, Maybe the next owner will appreciate it. Ha! Quite, said Arthur, followed by a secondary laugh that put him into a racking cough. Lutcher looked concerned and frankly surprised that his joke had so much effect. Will knew from experience to just let the fit pass, with a handkerchief ready. As with the key, it was not needed this time, but Riley took satisfaction in having been ready. Arthur resumed motion, and Will returned the cloth to his pocket. As Arthur reached the edge of the garden, his demeanor changed. His bonhomie seemed more forced, the lines of his illness deeper. This piqued Will's curiosity. Usually with Arthur, the bigger the crowd, the greater the show of strength. Apparently, it was important to Will's boss that this crowd adjust their estimate of his life expectancy downward. Sandra was walking up briskly, other partygoers trailing varying distances behind. Well, Arthur, despite your little surprise, we're almost ready for you. I'm always trying to steal a march, and never quite succeeding. Keep it in mind, Danny, when your time comes. Surprise is what keeps marriage going. Surprise and division of labor. I'll remember that. When will that time be, anyway? Lutcher held his hands up in a comical pantomime of delay, while Sandra looked at him and blinked in growing astonishment. Danny? It isn't Danny? Hello, Aunt Sandra. Well, surprise indeed! Sandra stepped forward, grabbed Dan by the shoulders, and gave him a powerful kiss on the cheek, which he returned weakly. Oh, my. Children! Danny! We know, said Kevin, walking up behind Julia. Dad, you almost made us miss the look on Mom's face. Arthur shrugged, and Lutcher's friend Joyce walked up and slipped her arm into Lutcher's. I seem to be just in time, too, she said and tilted her head sideways to give Lutcher a long kiss on the lips. Will detected a confused energy between them. 
Scanning around, he saw Sandra looking on with amused appraisal, Kevin and Julia with delight, Graham with puzzlement, and hanging back, Vanessa with some violent emotion which Will could not quite categorize. Apparently, she was brewing up one of her periodic storms. Was she jealous? He wondered, or did she just not like Lutcher? Love or hate to the same effect. Lutcher, dazed as he came out of the kiss, became aware of Graham just as the burlier man came up and took his hand. Hey, man, how the hell are ya? Asked Graham. Graham? Returned Dan with a smile. You're getting big. The term is huge. Said Graham's friend, at his side as always, gripping Lutcher's hand in turn. The name's Creighton Wallace. Damn glad to meet ya. Lutcher opened his mouth wordlessly as if unsure Creighton could be real. Will sympathized. All right, everybody, said Sandra. We will all pump Danny for information in a minute, but first there's a cake that needs cutting and a song that needs singing. One, two, three. Will took this as his cue to slip away. There was nothing to accomplish there amidst all the noise, and there were many preparations to check and double check inside the house, made easier by the family's temporary absence. You have been listening to Legacy Door, episode 1.7, Understandings. Jamie Gosling was the primary narrator and Sandra Dorn. Jamie Wren was Dan Lutcher, Kevin Dorn, and Creighton Wallace. Joseph Page was Arthur Dorn and Dudek. Michelle Lamone was Joyce Vera. John Dre was Tom Riley and Graham Dorn. The opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. The closing music is Star Force, also by Wayne. You can hear works by him at Toontank.com. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana Anash. This episode's cover image is Pink Chair by Tim Mossholder. You can find images by him on Unsplash. We hope you've been enjoying the party over the past few episodes, but next episode the party is over in more than one sense. In episode 1.8, Misunderstandings. You can help avoid misunderstandings by bringing any questions or comments to our website at LegacyDoor.wordpress.com where we have transcripts, trees, and production info. You can also find us at Legacy Door Novel on Twitter and Facebook, or review us on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is an abridged version of the novel Legacy Door, which you can find in Kindle or paperback from Amazon, and as an audiobook from many retailers, including Audible. Either to read along, read ahead, support us. All this was made possible by Dueling Genre Productions. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester. All rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester. Goodbye.